Welcome to Epiphany Fellowships Podcast. My name is Dr. Eric Mason, lead pastor and founder of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. Our desire is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in every week to check out new messages. God bless you and take care. Um, as was mentioned, I, I, I teach evangelism. And uh, one of the things I'm looking at as I'm teaching evangelism is how, how much the world has changed, how much our culture has changed, and that how are we going to communicate the gospel in a time period when these kind of changes are occurring. The global Christianity is changing, the American Christianity is changing, so many different things that are changing. Uh, but I'm reminded that, um, that when Jesus taught, he, he told stories. When Jesus taught... He communicated the gospel through narrative and through stories. So what I want to do today is to look at the book of Haggai, chapter 2, uh, but also tell you the story of my life and how Christ worked in my life and the narrative of my life as well. Um, I like looking at passages like Haggai. These are kind of obscure Old Testament passages. Uh, I did a commentary a couple years ago on Lamentations. And uh, exactly, yeah, you're, some of you are chuckling. Lamentations, why would you do a book on Lamentations? That's exactly what my wife said. Uh, I spent five years working on the book. She said, you're going to sell four copies. Uh, because <laughs> who wants a book on Lamentations? Seriously, why couldn't you do Romans or Ephesians, something that's going to sell more than four copies? Uh, but I like looking at Old Testament passages because you see the, uh, the basics of God's truth in the Old and in the New Testament. And in a book like Lamentations or a book like Haggai, you get to see the whole scope and canon of Scripture, how Christ is evident, how God is evident, and the, the scope of human history, God is at work. And so we're going to work, uh, look through this in Haggai chapter 2 at the scope of human history and how God is at work in the book of Haggai. Let me pray for us before we look into the text together. Lord, I'm thankful for this congregation, thankful for the work that you have already done and begun. Uh, we believe that you are faithful to, to continue to bless this, uh, this work and this ministry. Thank you, Lord, for the, the, the groundbreaking work that is happening here. May you continue to flourish your presence here in this midst, and we ask that in this time, may we find ourselves in your holy presence through your word. May we be changed not by uh, uh, my words, but by the word of God itself. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so I want to talk about the book of Haggai. I'll give you a little bit of background and the historical context of the book of Haggai. Some of you know the, the longer history of Israel. Israel becomes a great nation under two very prominent kings that we're familiar with, King David and King Solomon. David was a brilliant military and political leader. Under King David, he expands the borders and boundaries of Israel, and it becomes a superpower of its region because of his military and political prowess. Solomon takes over from his father, and Solomon is actually a brilliant economic leader. And so through his economic policies, uh, Israel's power also grows now on an economic level. So at the height of Israel's power, uh, both militarily and economically, uh, Solomon, as we know, builds a temple. And this temple represents the majesty and glory and splendor of Israel and the God, of course, who brought all this glory to Israel, Yahweh. And so the temple is built in Jerusalem in the capital city. It is the most magnificent building of its time. It is a beautiful building, not only in its architecture, but it is also beautiful because it is filled with gold, silver, precious metal, and precious stones. Everywhere you look, you see this symbol of glory and wealth and success, 
And in fact, we know that the Queen of Sheba comes all the way from another part of the world to behold the splendor of the Temple of Israel. It is the signature building. It is the moment that people say Israel is a superpower. Israel is a great nation. They have been incredibly blessed by God in the Promised Land. And the symbol of that glory was the Temple of Israel. Now, sadly, we know that the Old Testament doesn't end there with the glory of Israel and the glory of that beautiful temple filled with gold and silver. Well, we find out instead that the subsequent kings following David and Solomon are not as godly. In fact, they start falling away from God. They start worshiping idols. They start uh, disobedience towards the Ten Commandments and towards the book of Leviticus. And so they operate under this disobedience towards God. And as a result of that, God needs to bring punishment upon the nation of Israel. First, the Assyrians are sent, and they wipe out the northern kingdom. And then the Babylonians come, and they wipe out the southern kingdom. And then eventually, the Babylonians conquer the capital city of Jerusalem. Now, the Babylonians were not happy that Jerusalem uh, took that long to conquer. And so they said that Israel will never rise up again. They will never be a threat to us as a power ever again. So they went and destroyed uh, everything about that nation. Uh, they burned the crops in the field, and they... Uh, salted the fields so that a land once flowing with milk and honey became a barren desert and a wasteland. And so Israel, that has once been this great nation, was now reduced to poverty level. Not only that, the Babylonians had a way of destroying their civilization by taking people from their homeland and sending them into exile. And we know the story through Daniel and his friends of these, uh, uh, the, the citizens of Jerusalem taking away into exile in Babylon. So there's nothing left of this nation. And of course, the greatest symbol of Israel, their temple, had to be destroyed. So of course, they go in and they take all the gold and silver and the precious metals and precious stones. They, they loot that whole building. But they don't want to just loot the building. They want to destroy it. So they, they tear apart the, the timbers and the, and the rocks. And, the, and it's just left as a pile of rubble a debris, a, a junkyard. Uh, if, if you've lived in the city long enough, you know that there are these vacant lots where you just see piles of garbage and, dr and junk and debris. That's what the temple would have looked like. Uh, this once great symbol of their glory and their power, Israel had seen this temple and said, this is why God has blessed us because of this temple. All of that was gone. The gold silver was gone. The, the building had been torn down. Nothing left except a pile of rubble, a junkyard filled with debris. And it is in that moment that God is going to begin to speak to Israel. Now, they go away into exile. They come back from exile. God, in his amazing grace, allows Israel, forgives them, and allows them to come back to the promised land. But when they come back to the promised land, they try to rebuild that temple. Now, you got to remember, these are not wealthy people anymore. These are not powerful people. They are refugees. They are people with no resources. So they try to fix up that temple. They move a piece of rubble from here to there. They, they clear up the debris as much as they can. But at the end of the day, it's, it looks like a, a shack. It looks like nothing you would want to actually worship God in. It's just a pile of rubble. It still looks like a junkyard. <laughs> and in that, in that moment... The Israelites are at their worst moment in their history. Yeah. They're realizing that they are nobodies. Yeah. They were once a great nation, and now they are no longer a great nation. Yeah. They once had a great temple, and now they just worship, uh, try to worship in this pile of rubble. So you see this image of the most uh, deeply uh, 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 broken people you can imagine. You can imagine how they think about themselves. Their, their self-image and self-perception would have been devastated. They would have seen themselves as the lowest of the low, as the very least, very least of people. 
and it is into that reality that God shows up. And this is the truth of the gospel. That we can try to do all these great things, but at the end of the day, sometimes when we are the most broken, when we are the most downcast, that is when God shows up. God shows up in our most broken places. When I was a, a, a young kid, hard to, hard to tell now, but I was a cute baby. I know, it's hard to tell now. I was a really cute baby. I am the, uh, uh, I am the uh, uh, fifth child of six children. Uh, I have three older sisters, an older brother, and a younger brother. My older brother passed away um, of leukemia when I was young, and then my younger brother died of a congenital heart defect within a couple of weeks of his birth. So I'm the only surviving child of a family of, of, of six, uh, and so I'm the only son, but also the only surviving son uh, in, and the youngest of that family. Uh, so in that sense, it's a recipe for disaster because I'm the youngest, the only son in an Asian family. I'm a, I was spoiled rotten is another way of saying that. Uh, so I grew up in this family where I was, as the only son, as the youngest, my, my parents really wanted me to succeed in life as, as, the, as the heir of the family. And so they, uh, uh, they put me into a second grade when I was five years old to accelerate my education. Uh, uh, as soon as I could walk, they put me into uh, martial arts, Taekwondo, and by the age of five, I got my black belt. Uh, so they really wanted my, me to do well. They really wanted me to do well. Uh, so, uh, and one of the things is that they wanted me to actually try my hand in acting and modeling. Like I said, I was a cute baby. And so, I don't know if y'all remember Star Search. Yeah, y'all remember Star Search. They used to have a little section for the, the cute kids to come out there, and there's a show called Toddlers and Tiaras, where little girls, uh, they have these little pageants for children. Well, in Korea, they have a boys' version of that, and I entered the boys' version of the star search for five-year-olds. So I'm five years old, and I enter the contest to find the cutest boy in Seoul, and I win first place. <laughs> and, and that, that bumped me to the national competition, and in the national competition, I finished in second place. I was runner-up. I blew it in the uh, bathing suit competition. That's what, <laughs> that's what did me in, the bathing suit portion. Uh, now, what that did, though, was it actually uh, launched a, a modeling career for me. So because I did well in these uh, competitions, uh, I got these modeling contracts to do print ads and television commercials and appeared in soap operas, and uh, they made little calendars out of pictures that I've done. In fact, uh, I'm not making this up. Last year, <laughs> you all are looking at me like, no way, <laughs> I'm not making this up. <laughs> This past summer, I took my family to Korea for vacation. We go to this little souvenir shop, and they sell postcards there. And I see a pack of postcards, 20 postcards. So why does this picture look so familiar? <laughs> so I open it up. I look at the postcards. Three out of those 20 postcards are pictures of me in them. I'm not kidding. Go to Korea and look for my postcards. <laughs> Uh, so that was my life in Korea. I was a black belt in Taekwondo. I was doing well in school, and I was a, a child model and, and a television star. Um, but when I t uh, right after my sixth birthday, my parents uh, decided to move to the United States. And that's when all the good things ended for me when I came to the United States. Uh, first of all, because my English wasn't, wasn't good enough, they had me not going to third grade, which what I would have done when I was in Korea. They had me go down to first grade because they said, your English isn't good enough. We're going to actually set you back. Uh, the ty type of martial arts that was offered in my neighborhood was not the type that I had in Korea. So they said, you're not a black belt anymore. You're, you're a yellow belt. 
Uh, and uh, as for my acting and modeling career, this is before Gary Coleman and Arnold. They weren't looking for cute ethnic kids at that time. That was not the, that was not the thing. So my, my modeling and, and television career came to a screeching halt as there was nothing for me to do on American television at that time. Now, so everything that was kind of important to me, the, the, my life that was filled with gold and silver, uh, almost overnight, all of that was, was gone. Now, when you're six years old or seven years old, you can recover from that. You know, your six-year-olds are pretty resilient. They, they can get over those kinds of things. But uh, another thing happened in our family, which was uh, my parents started to have uh, some marital problems. And, and I realize now, many years later, that a lot of that had to do uh, with my dad as an immigrant man uh, who was seen as an outsider. And because he maybe didn't speak English as well, he was a brilliant man. He was an artist, uh, was, a, was, a, was a brilliant artist, uh, but he, would, he couldn't keep a job because he, he thought he was smarter than his bosses. Uh, and his bosses were like, no, you're just a poor immigrant. You're a stupid immigrant. You can't be, you don't know anything. And so he was put down at work and he would oftentimes quit jobs or had difficulty keeping a job because the people at work were, would look down upon him and diminish him. Uh, even though he knew he was a gifted and talented person, the people at work didn't see him that way. So he had a lot of trouble keeping a, a job. He started his own business, but the business didn't do too well. And so that meant that my mom had to start going to work. And that created a little bit of tension in the household uh, because uh, some of the, the dynamics that were typical in an Asian family got disrupted when both my parents were starting to work and my mom was actually making more steady income than my dad was. He felt very offended as a, as a, as a male uh, and it really created a tension and they started arguing a little bit more. Uh, so when I was about nine years old, my, my dad left my family. Uh, he disappeared. I had, I had no idea where he went, uh, but he left my family. And because uh, he, didn't ha uh, he was giving some income, it meant a real uh, socioeconomic drop for us. We couldn't really afford to where we were living. My mom had to take on a second job, and we ended up moving to a, a rough neighborhood in Baltimore. Sorry, that's redundant. A neighborhood in Baltimore. Uh, so <laughs> we ended up living... Uh, <laughs> hey, I'm from Baltimore! <laughs> Baltimore. <laughs> uh, so uh, we moved to this neighborhood. It was, um, it was, a, it was a, a inner city neighborhood. Uh, what was interesting was that all of us in that neighborhood were poor. We had that in common, but we were divided along racial lines. So there were poor blacks, poor whites, and poor recent Korean immigrants, and we all had poverty in common, but we, we, we didn't occupy the same kind of emotional, spiritual space. And that's something that I've struggled with over the years in working on areas of racial reconciliation and racial justice. Why is it that even though we were all marginalized, we were all poor, all facing the same struggles, why couldn't we get along? And it's been the fo focus and work of my academic work of how can we bring people across uh, different uh, uh, races and cultures together? Because uh, I saw in elementary school we were getting along okay, and then in junior high school the, the tensions would start to flare up and then by high school you had full-blown gangs that were split right along racial lines and there were gang fights uh, split right along racial lines and, and it confused me as a junior high high school student trying to figure a lot of this out but that was the neighborhood that I grew up in my mom actually ended up uh, working two jobs uh, her first job was from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. she would go into uh, inner city carryout uh, on North Avenue in Baltimore uh, and, and you all know what, the, what those carryouts are like with the, the plexiglass bulletproof in the front and a little lazy Susan with a, uh, food and the money goes back and forth well that's, that's where my mom worked and she would work from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Uh, in, uh, in Baltimore uh, and then at night she would go to start a night shift at 11 o'clock uh, to about 6 o'clock in the morning 7-8 hour night shift uh, at a nursing home where she was a nurse's aide and she would change bedpans and be on call uh, and she would work that night shift she would rush home 
home at 6 o'clock in the morning, uh, get, make breakfast for her kids, send us off to school, and then she would sleep for two hours, and then she would go back to work and start that cycle all over again. Uh, so she worked 20 hours a day, six days a week to keep her family together. Um, and uh, that's why it's, it's so profoundly offended me when these, these crazy blank politicians uh, would say, oh, your, your mom's a welfare queen, isn't she? She must be a welfare queen. She must be a lazy person living off the government. This, this was the hardest working woman I've ever met, 20 hours a day, six days a week. On Sunday, she kept the Sabbath. She would go to church, and she would work in the kitchen to help feed the pastors and the elders and the deacons of that church. She was the hardest working woman I've ever known, and people were saying she was a, a lazy welfare queen who was, who was a single mom who was living off the, the, the government. I, I, I couldn't understand that because this was the hardest working woman I know. There, it was difficult for us to make ends meet. She was uh, working off a very, off of minimum wage, working 20 hours a day, um, and so uh, we had to get food stamps. We were on food stamps for many years because it was hard for us to make ends meet. Uh, they, you know, the government tried to give us things like government cheese, and you know, Koreans, we don't know what to do with cheese. Sorry about that. <laughs> you know, cheese and kimchi just does not go together at all. So that hunk of cheese sat in the freezer. It might still be in that apartment. We don't know. It might have morphed into something else. I don't know. But we had government cheese, but we didn't need it. Uh, but we were on food stamps. And again, the, 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 the politicians and the pundits would say, well, you're, uh, your mom's a welfare queen. Your, your mom's a, uh, is, a, is a lazy person trying to, uh, but she was the hardest working woman I know, and she kept her family together. In fact, one of the things she did was not only uh, give us an example of hard work, but she really gave us an example of, of being a spiritual prayer warrior. Uh, she's now in her 80s. She still lives in Maryland. Um, she showed me the condition of her knees a couple of years ago. And most of us have one kneecap on each knee. She has five kneecaps on each knee. Because when she kneels to pray, her kneecaps open up to conform to the shape of the floor. So that when she kneels, because she's been on her knees for 40 years, nonstop, every day, an hour or two hours a day, your knees can't take that kind of pressure. When you pray that much, your kneecaps crack open. So when she kneels now, her kneecaps conform to the shape of the floor. And that's why her children, all four of us, are in Christian ministry of some kind or another, because she has prayed for her children and for her grandchildren. <laughs> Hallelujah. Uh, we grew up in this neighborhood in Baltimore, and I remember, uh, um, again, for you, you can't tell now, but I actually am a pretty good sprinter on short distances, because uh, we would go to the library, my friends and I, and uh, in order to get to our home faster, the apartment complex, you could either walk around two miles around the cemetery, or could sprint through the cemetery, but the cemetery was all where all the beatdowns occurred, so I learned how to run really fast <laughs> through a cemetery <laughs> in Baltimore. <laughs> uh, and, and I think about these, this, the, 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 where I grew up. Uh, actually, a friend of mine, uh, he's a documentarian, and he wanted to do a documentary on our family and how, as an immigrant family, we moved out of the neighborhood and moved into uh, you know, uh, middle-class life. And uh, he had this huge camera, and we're going through my old neighborhood. It's still there in Baltimore. And we're walking through, and uh, uh, we're taking photos and you know, doing kind of interviews on, on, in my old neighborhood. Uh, and, uh, and it's now an all-black neighborhood. And uh, uh, three young teenagers come up, and they, they start asking us questions about, hey, what y'all doing in our neighborhood? He said, well, we're filming a documentary about someone who grew up in this neighborhood. And their first thought was, oh, uh, is he a rap star? I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not a rap star. Uh, but the second question is telling of, of what the neighborhood is still is like, oh, was he shot? Is that why you're here uh, in the neighborhood filming a documentary about him? Uh, so that was the neighborhood I grew up in. Uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a place that I would look around and I would say, wow, 
this is a this is a broken down place. Uh, skinny back then, uh, skinny Asian kid, poor self-image, alone, lonely, uh, broken, uh, fatherless. Uh, but you know that's when God found me. That's amazing that when we're at our lowest point, sometimes that's when God finds us. The, the psalmist says that if I go to the depths, you are there. And if I go to the heights, you are there. If you look at the literal translation of it, it says, if I go to the depths, you. There's no verb there. It just says you. There you are. And if I go to the heights, you. You. When we're in our depths, when our lives feel broken, and we're in a pile of rubble that just looks like a mess, sometimes that's when God shows up and comes to our presence. And God shows up. And he says, you can be strong. We'll go to the next slide. It talks about be strong, people of God. When God shows up, he gives an imperative command. Uh, verses uh, 4 and following. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people. So what God establishes is that even in the midst of your brokenness, even in the midst of everything around you looking like a pile of rubble, you can be strong. Now think with me how the people of God are experiencing at this particular moment. They've lost everything. They come back to Jerusalem and they try to rebuild the temple. Go to the first slide. Sorry about that. Go to the first slide. And when they try to rebuild, they actually end up just throwing things together. And that temple, they remember, was a great temple filled with gold and silver. They realize now that that former glory is no more. Read verse 3. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? You remember building the temple with gold and silver, but now does it not seem to you like nothing? It looks like nothing. Because all they could do, they have no gold, they have no silver, they just took piles of rubble, rearranged it, and said, this is now the temple of God. It seemed like nothing in comparison to the glory of the former temple. And in that moment, God says, be strong, be strong. And he says it three times, you'll notice, I highlighted it, be strong, Zerubbabel, be strong, Joshua, be strong, all you people. Those are what we call imperatible commands. It is an imperative. You will do this. God commands it so. You will do this. You will be strong. And he says it three times. Now in the Bible, when you get the imperative, which is a command, you will notice that it's followed up what we call the indicative. So every time God gives a command to do something, he will give you how you can do it. It's, a, it's an amazing thing about the scripture. God doesn't just say, well, be holy, and then, well, forget about that. Just, just try it. He tells you, be holy as I am holy. He gives you a description. He says, be strong, and I will give you the indicative or a clear reason why you can be strong. So in this passage, when God says three times, be strong, be strong, be strong, gives you three commands, he will give you three reasons why you can and will be strong. The first reason is found here in verse 5. You can be strong, Israel, because this is what I covenanted with you. My spirit remains among you. This is powerful because the word there, the key word there is the word covenant. Now in the old times, in ancient Near East times, when you saw a covenant between a lord and a peasant, the lord had complete control over that covenant. The peasant had to do all the work in order to earn the master's favor. 
the Lord and the, and the, and the, uh, and the sovereign well, had complete authority and would say to the peasant, you will do the following 15 things and you will earn my favor and then I will protect you. You will have to earn your covenant with me. That's why we call this a covenant of works because you've got to work to meet up the standards of that covenant. Most relationship between a higher power and a lower power operates under what we call the covenant of works. You've got to work to earn the favor of God. But what God points to here is I don't have a covenant of works with you because I have covenanted with you and my spirit remains among you. Now think about the context with me. What have the people of Israel done over and over again? Disobeyed, disobeyed, idols and idols and false gods, all the things that they weren't supposed to do, Israel did. And so they broke every commandment. They didn't live up to the work of covenant. But they are still recipients of God's grace. Because they, we don't have a covenant of works with God. We don't have to earn God's favor God's favor and love and mercy is a result of his grace lavished upon us. So you messed up, Israel. You did everything wrong, but my covenant with you is the same, and I remain among you because you never had to earn my love. It has always been a free gift of grace to you, and that's why my spirit remains with you. When my father left my home, I didn't hear from him for several weeks. I'm sorry, several years actually. We didn't hear from him for several years. When I was about 11 years old, my father calls me for the first time. Hadn't heard from him in two years, but he calls me out of the blue. And he starts talking to me, and he starts talking about all the things that uh, I should be doing as his son. He said, are you getting straight A's in school? Uh, are you doing well in your classwork? Or, and he started going through all this list, and he started actually quizzing me. He started asking questions like, so what do you know about Renaissance art and Baroque music? Who's your favorite Renaissance artist? I think I said Picasso. I didn't know. I was 11 years old. And he goes through all these things that I should know, all these things I needed to be doing. And he did that for about 30 minutes. And at the end of the 30 minutes, I got off the phone and I cried and cried and cried because my earthly father had just told me that if I'm going to be loved by him, I was going to have to earn it. I was going to have to work. I was going to have to do what he wanted me to do and that he had a checklist of things that I needed to do. A checklist of things that said, if you don't do these things, then you, you don't measure up and you don't get to have my love. You don't get to have that. Now, as an 11-year-old, you don't know what to deal with that kind of information, so you internalize it and you create a tape in your mind and you start playing that tape over and over again as you grow older and older. And you start playing the tape of, I'm not good enough. I have to work harder. I have to earn my earthly father's love. So that's what I started to do. I started getting good grades in school. I got into the school that I wanted to get into. I did all the things that I thought would earn my earthly father's love. But then I, when I became a Christian, you translate that over into your spiritual life. And now I'm trying to earn my heavenly father's love. And so I said, what do I have to do? I have to do well in, in Christian churches. I have to go to seminary because that's what really good Christians do. That must be on my checklist. And I got to go to a mission trip. And I got to do all these things for God because I have to earn the favor and love of my heavenly father. But you know what happens when you try to do that? The list gets longer and longer. And the failures uh, and the things that you do bad is longer than the things you do well. And all that negative stuff that you have in your life, it starts accumulating into a much longer list of failures. 
In fact, I had such a, a comprehensive list of my shortcomings and failures. My last year in seminary, I said, I'm done. I'm not going to be a pastor. I'm not going to be a minister of the gospel. Look at all this messed up thing. Look at this long list of problems and sins in my life. There's no way that God could use me as a, as a vessel and as a servant. Look at this incredible long list of failures. So I told all my friends in seminary, I'm actually going to drop out or I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm going to finish this degree, but I'm not really going to be a pastor anymore. I'm not going to pursue what it means to be a, a minister of Jesus. And, and so it's good to have friends. My friends noticed this and said, hey, we're going to go on this uh, retreat and conference. It's in Canada. Uh, do you want to come with us? I said, well, uh, yeah, I guess so, because they have good Chinese food in Toronto. We'll make it a, we'll make it a trip. Uh, so, so we took a trip out to, to, to Canada, uh, and it was one of those conferences where they come around and they pray for you individually. The room wasn't much larger than this, and so everybody's kind of standing. They got rid of all the chairs, and people are standing, and they come around and pray, and uh, people started falling as God's Spirit fell upon them. And I'm in the back, because the last thing I want right now is prayer. The last thing I want is to do business with God, because in my mind, I'm knowing that when I'm going to do business with God, he's going to tell me everything I've done wrong because I've got this list of all of my failures and he's going to remind me of that. So I went over into a corner and I uh, fell on the ground and I was trying to hide from people on my knees and, and eventually the group of prayer warriors come and found me in the corner and I was trying to hide from them. So I was on my knees and I had my head in my hands and I didn't want them to, to, to pray for me because I knew if, if they prayed for me, I was going to break down and cry. And so I started praying, God, I'm such a failure. I've, I've messed up so much. Look at this list. Look at this list of all the ways that I have messed up, all the ways that I have failed you. Look at this list of all the ways that I have turned against you. I'm so messed up. Look at this list. Look at this list. God. And it was one of the few times in my life that I actually heard the audible voice of God. And the voice of God said, what list are you talking about? What list are you talking about? I have never kept the list as far as the east is from the west. I've removed my transgressions from you. His is the kind of love that keeps no record of wrong. You've kept the list. I don't have that list for you because my covenant with you is not a covenant of works. It is a covenant of grace. It is a covenant of grace. We cannot earn the Father's love with our works. He chooses to lavish His love and His mercy and His grace upon us. So be strong for His covenant of grace is with you. Be strong because he will bring to your life the whole of creation power. In the next verse it says that this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. Through this passage, God is pointing out that he put all the world together. He put the stars in their place. He made the mountains and the seas. Everything that you see in this world, God has created. And it reminds us that you can be strong because the same power that put creation in place is the same power at work in you. The same power that caused the stars to shine and the mountains to raise up is the same power that is at work in you. And God will bring into your life, be strong because God will bring into your life the creative power, the spirit power he's going to bring into your life. My wife and I have been married 21 years this uh, November. Hey, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
We have two children, Anna and Elijah. When Anna was one and a half years old, she was diagnosed with a blood condition called neutropenia. Uh, if you know anything about the white blood cells, there are multiple components, but the neutrophils in her blood, which is a, a component of her white blood cells, was being attacked by other components in her white blood cells. So the neutrophils were being seen as the enemy by the other white blood cells, so they were eating up the neutrophils in her body. And so what happens is that the neutrophils, in a specific task that they have as white blood cells, is to combat bacterial infections. So she's a year and a half years old, she's teething, and so there's all this bacteria in her mouth, she can't fight that infection because her neutrophil level dips. Let's say the average neutrophil is about 1,000, her numbers were down to about 200. So because she couldn't fight the infection of the bacteria in her mouth while she's teething, her fever would spike to 104, 105 degrees. There are mild versions of neutropenia. She had a chronic uh, extreme version of neutropenia. So every week we were in and out of the hospital. Her fever would spike. We would rush her in. They were pumper full of antibiotics, pumper full of IV fluids. And I don't know if you've ever had a, a child, a one-year-old in a hospital where they're getting needles stuck in them and they're looking at you in pain. It is the worst, most helpless feeling as a father to to see your child go through that and we were doing this every week every other week we we're in and out of the hospital and her fever would spike we would take her in and pump her full of antibiotics to to make it through that week it was also right around this time that my daughter was diagnosed with neutropenia uh, that my father had a stroke uh, my dad had come back home towards the end of his life my mom who is the most gracious woman in the world said i will take you back after almost 25 30 years apart they never officially divorced but uh, she graciously said, I'm going to take you back. I remember talking to my mom. I said, Mom, don't do this. He's gonna, he's gonna, it's, it's not going to be good. And he said, no, we're the Christians here. We're going to act in a Christian way. And so showing amazing grace, she accepted him back. Within a month of his return, he had a, a massive stroke, and he was taken to the hospital. And so because they never officially divorced, she was going to be saddled with all his medical bills. So I was mad. I was furious at my dad. In fact, I went down there after a stroke, uh, and I went to the hospital, and he couldn't talk, and he was immobilized, but I was yelling at him in the hospital. I was like, how dare you do this? You abandoned mom for decades, and then you come back, and you're going to saddle her with all these hospital bills? And I, and I, and I, and I screamed at him in the hospital because I was so angry uh, at what he was doing uh, to, to our family. I went back and actually flew back and forth from Maryland and Massachusetts where we were pastoring in Boston and Baltimore, going back and forth. Uh, meanwhile, my daughter was in and out of the hospital. My, my father is in the hospital, and uh, we were struggling with this. And uh, the doctor in Massachusetts uh, said that we have an experimental medication we want to try on your daughter. It's shown some good results, uh, but we want to try this out for your daughter. He said, all right, let's do it. But the weekend that we were supposed to do that, uh, my brother-in-law calls and says, your dad's not going to make it through this weekend. Uh, uh, it's, uh, the doctor said, he, this is it, this is the last weekend, so you need to come down. We told our doctors, uh, let's hold off on a treatment for our daughter, and we rushed down to Maryland to be with my, uh, I, I go down first to be with my, with my dad. Um, and it, but it didn't really hit me that he was really going to die, because he'd been in the hospice care for, for a couple of months now at that point. Uh, so it didn't hit me that he was going to die until we were in the waiting room, and my mom and my sisters began planning his funeral that was going to happen in a few days. They talked about who we're going to invite, where's the venue, and they're planning this. And then it really hit me, my dad's going to die. And I am, there's no way I am going to end, uh, let him uh, uh, pass with, without reconciling. Uh, so I left that meeting, rushed over to my dad's room. My niece and my nephews are there. I kick him out. I go in there and I, and I grab his hand and I, and I say, uh, Dad, I forgive you and I need you to forgive me because I have harbored 
hatred and anger towards you all of my life. That's wrong. So I need you to forgive me for that sin that I've hated you for so long. Can you forgive me as I forgive you? Uh, and, he, and he clenched my hands. It was weak. He, was, he had suffered a stroke, but he clenched my hand. And through tears in his eyes, he, he barely nodded his head. And on, his, on that night, we were reconciled. Uh, uh, Later that evening, my, um, <clears throat> my daughter and my, my, my wife and my daughter arrived from Massachusetts because they knew the time was short. Uh, he opens his eyes, he sees his grandchild, he closes his eyes. Later that night, in the middle of the night, he passed away. Um, we get back to Massachusetts, and the doctors are saying, hey, do we want to do this thing? I said, okay, let's go ahead and do the, uh, the, the experimental treatment. Uh, and so they do the treatment, and I said, well, you're, they were about to give it on Saturday night. I said, can you hold off just the day? Uh, can you administer it on Sunday? Because uh, I want to go to my church, uh, and I want to I ask the church to pray for us. So I go to church, and I said, uh, church, I, I wasn't preaching that day, but I said, church, you know, you know about our situation with our daughter. Can, can we just spend some time interceding for her health? And so when I got back to the hospital, they administered the, 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 the medication to her. That morning, they tested her blood level to just to see where her neutrophils were at. Uh, her blood level that morning on Sunday morning was zero. She had no neutrophils in her system. Uh, they uh, tried the experimental medication that afternoon. Later that night, they said, well, we're going to do one more blood test just to see where we're at. And the number was up to 1,200 within 12 hours. Um, and they said... It usually doesn't <laughs> act that quick. This is usually a two or three day trial period, but it looks like it, re well, because God healed her of that. Uh, and, and you need to know that she is now 16 years old. Since that day, she has not had a single problem about with neutrophilia. Not a single one. She's taller than me now. That's how, <laughs> that's how, that's how it's gotten. Uh, healthy. Uh, top of her class, captain of her dance team. She's, uh, she's healthy as can be. Now, I praise God for the creative power that he sent for my family, that he moved heaven and earth and, and the mountains and the seas to bring healing to my daughter. But there's another part of this that really I've kind of figured out over the years, and that is that uh, neutropenia is a type of disease that's called an autoimmune disease where one part of the body attacks another part of the body. The body attacks itself. It, it hates itself and attacks itself. And I realized that in the spiritual realm, that was what I was doing in my relationship with my father. Uh, I was, because of my hatred towards my father, I was, I was attacking myself. I was, I was killing myself. And once that healing and reconciled occurred in the spiritual realm, I believe that it also came over into the physical realm and brought healing to my daughter. That those things are not disconnected. That sometimes the healing we need in the spiritual realm will also translate over to the healing that we need in the physical realm. I believe we can be strong because God will bring his creative power, all the powers of the world, upon you so that you can be strong. The third be strong comes in the next passage where he says, what is desired by all nations will come and I will fill this house. Now, what he's talking to specifically here, this house is that pile of rubble we were talking about earlier. The debris that was just kind of thrown back together to try to make the temple. It looked like garbage. It looked like a heap. And the passage says, I will fill this pile of rubble with glory. In fact, he goes on to say that the glory of this present house, this ramshackle hut, 
is going to be greater than the glory of the former house. And everybody say, what? That's not possible. The former house was Solomon's temple. Gold, silver, precious metal, precious stones, every good thing you can think of. And you're telling us that this heap of rubble is greater and glory than the glory of Solomon's temple? And the answer, of course, is because the desired of all nations will show up to that temple. Who is the desired of all nations? Sunday school answer. Who is the desired of all nations? Jesus. Jesus. And history teaches us that indeed this temple that was a pile of rubble is the exact temple that Jesus will show up. And as soon as Jesus shows up and enters that pile of rubble, rubble, I don't care how much gold, silver, precious metal, precious stone Solomon had, that's garbage and rubble compared to the glory of a temple filled with the presence of Jesus. That's the glory of the temple of God when Jesus fills that temple. Jesus fills that temple, the temple that is a pile of rubble. And I want to tell you that you might look at your life sometimes and say, where did this rubble come from? Where does the debris and junkyard that I'm living in come from? And you might compare yourself to gold and silver of your friends and the gold and silver of your neighbors and say, how did I end up in this pile of rubble? But when the living God is in your temple, there is nothing more glorious. I went to an extremely competitive college, Columbia University up in New York, and the students are really competitive with each other. And so uh, I led a senior Bible study. I was, a, I was a senior in college, and I led a group of freshmen in my Bible study. And one kid, a really great kid, I, I really liked him. Uh, he was actually uh, a pastor's kid who uh, uh, was, a, was a really good kid, but I, I knew for sure that I was smarter than this guy. Uh, remember that as the story goes on. I was smarter than this guy. Uh, but he, uh, he did really well in college, and he went off, and he got this really plum internship in Switzerland, in Geneva, as a banker. Uh, and because of that, he was able to translate that into a high-level brokerage company in the United States uh, in, on Wall Street. So he was working Wall Street doing brokerage in, a, in around the time of the heyday of the uh, dot-com boom, uh, the tech boom. And he was overseeing the tech sector for this company. So he actually, at the age of 27, 28, became the youngest vice president of this company uh, as a Wall Street broker. So he was living large. And so he's in New York living this great life, and I hear about it, and, you know, I was smarter than him in college. Uh, so he comes up and he visits me when I was a pastor in the Boston area, and he tells me about his life, and he visits me and he tells me, this is what it means to be a, a big-time broker on Wall Street and uh, all the, the benefits of being a vice president of a, of a major American bank. And he was talking about how uh, this was a very uh, uh, high-end culture where they would uh, rent out the entire Guggenheim Museum and have soirees at the Guggenheim Museum. Uh, and then he would talk about uh, how they would have not uh, sandwiches for lunch, but steak lunches. Steak lunches where they would have $100 steaks. Now, steak is my kryptonite. You got to know. Uh, any kind of good steak will, will, will do me in. But he's describing $100 steaks where I couldn't even use a steak knife. It was, it was too tender. I had to use a butter knife to cut my steak because it was that tender. And I put the meat in my mouth and it started dissolving because it was such 
a tender piece of meat, and I'm going, uh, <laughs> that's, that sounds like a good piece of steak. And so he's describing all these things, and uh, he talks about how uh, his company had courtside tickets at the Knicks games, right behind the Knicks bench. And he doesn't even like basketball or follow basketball. He's like, yeah, the other day I was courtside at the Knicks game and some tall Jamaican dude was in front of me. Patrick Ewing was in front of you? <laughs> Patrick Ewing sweated on you? He's like, you don't even like basketball. And so he's talking and describing about this amazing life that he lives. And what am I thinking? I was smarter than you in college. <laughs> but he describes this house filled with gold, silver, precious metal, and precious stones. And he describes his life, and I said, well, you know, you told me about what your life is like. I, I want to tell you what I do as a pastor of an urban church. We pick up my wife. She's a school teacher, and at the end of her school day, we pick her up, and we drive to a family that we've been working with for many years. It's a Haitian family, and very much like immigrant family that I grew up in. The mom was a nurse's aide. Both parents worked really long hours, which meant that the kids were home alone, often by themselves. So my wife and I would go over with a family of five kids to go over and help. We would tutor or hang out with the kids on a, on a typical weekday afternoon. So I I took my million-dollar friend over to this house to hang out with the kids. And there are five kids uh, from two to about 10 years old. Four of the kids were in elementary school. And I'm convinced that the, each teacher gave them a two-pound bag of sugar, and they consumed the entire bag because by the time they got home, they were literally bouncing off the walls. They were flying through the air, jumping off the couch. Uh, the two-year-old was the best. She was rolling on the floor, gives me the middle finger, says all sorts of words that I don't even know to this day. Uh, <laughs> And I'm looking around at this crazy chaos, kids flying through the air, jumping off of furniture, Exorcist 3 at my feet. <laughs> and I'm looking around, I'm looking over in the corner, there's my million dollar friend, he's cowering in fear in the corner at what's going on. And I look over and I think in my mind, you know what, you go, you go ahead and keep those next tickets. You go ahead and keep those steak lunches. You could even keep your soirees at the Guggenheim. You keep all of those things because right here is the kingdom of God. And there is nowhere else I'd rather be than in the kingdom of God. So keep your gold and silver and precious metal and precious stones. I don't care if I'm in a pile of rubble as long as the glory of Jesus my Savior is there in my house. Friends, you will be tempted to compare your building, your house, your life to others. But recognize that when the glory of God fills your life, there is nothing more beautiful, more glorious. Lord, I thank you for the good work of this congregation. I pray for the ongoing outpouring of your spirit that we might know what it means to be filled with the glory of the living God. And may our house be filled with your glory and your glory alone. For it is in your name we pray. Let the church say, Amen. Thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that it was a blessing to you and it was aiding in your life to help you to show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. If this message has been a blessing to you, we want you to consider partnering with us in ministry so that we can maximize what God has called us to do locally, nationally, and internationally. You can go to epiphanyfellowship.org, go under give, and consider donating. Thank you. Take care. See you next week. <laughs>